seated. Thank you. Psalm 119, verses 137 through 176, I will read to you, and you'll follow along in your print Bible or on the screen behind me. That would be Pew Bible, page 515, if you need to grab a Pew Bible. 137 through 176 today. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever. And your law is true. Trouble and anguish have not have found me out, excuse me, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. 145. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw me, they draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Look upon my affliction and deliver me. For I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word. Like one who finds great spoil, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you, for your rules are righteous. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. And the final stanza, 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray 
Like a lost sheep, seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. That is Psalm 119. If you have been here the last four weeks, you have read and heard the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Congratulations. You can pat yourself on the back a little bit for doing that. It was good. We are going to settle in today on 153 through 160, and we will read back through that throughout the course of this sermon. But for now, I want to tell you a story. I want to begin with a story today. It's a true story. In 1914, a man named Ernest Shackleton, if you're a history buff, that name probably is familiar to you. He and a team of explorers set out from England to do something that no one had ever accomplished before. They were going to cross Antarctica from one side to the other across the South Pole. Disaster struck when the team's ship, the Endurance, became entrapped in ice and eventually sank after her hull was crushed. Marooned on on nearby Elephant Island, about a thousand miles due southeast from the southern tip of South America, winter was setting in and there seemed like little hope for survival for the couple hundred men that had survived the crushing of the Endurance. In a desperate effort to get help, Shackleton and five others planned to set out on a 20-foot lifeboat across some of the most dangerous and storm-filled waters in the world. It was an 800 nautical mile journey to South Georgia Island. That was due, let's see, so South America would have been due northwest, and they had to head due northeast in order to get to this other island, 800 miles. Armed with a compass, a sextant, and a fixed point in the sky, the North Star, by night, Shackleton placed his faith and a man named Frank Worsley, the captain of the Endurance, and the best navigator that was left alive after the wreck. He was going to guide them to safety and salvation, not only for the six that were aboard the ship, but also for the hundreds of men that would be left waiting on the island with no way of knowing, no way of hearing if this little rescue team had made it to find help. There wasn't a great chance of survival but it was their only chance of salvation. Shackleton and Worsley reasoned that the one necessary component to success was one thing, a fixed point. They needed a fixed point. If they could main contact with the North Star, then they had a chance. They had a shot. We, as we will see, in Psalm 153, or 119 verses 153 through 160, we are also in need of a fixed point. There is a necessary, one necessary component to our salvation, and it is expressed to us in Psalm 119. It is obviously, spoiler alert, the Word of God, right, with a little w, and also Naturally, a big W as well, and we will see that from the text today. This is the fourth and final installment of our exposition of Psalm 119. See if you can remember with me. The scan, scan was the word that I've used through the last four weeks to help us remember what, how it is that God communicated with us. He communicated with us sufficiently, with clarity, with authority, and today his communication to us is a necessity. That's the N, S-C-A-N. So the word is necessary. Three points, really four points, but the last point will be our concluding point. The word is necessary because we are afflicted. 
number one. Number two, the word is necessary because we are lost without it. And number three, the, the word is necessary because we have adversaries, an adversary and multiple adversaries. So let's set in to Psalm 119, 153 now and go to our first point. We are afflicted. The word is necessary because we are afflicted. Psalm 119, 153. It says, look on my affliction. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. The affliction that is being referred to here by David the psalmist is spoken of in the previous stanza. If we go back a few verses to Psalm 119, 145 through 148, it says this, With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will, I will keep your statutes. Here it comes again. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before the dawn and cry for your help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. He is expressing observation, hope, keeping the statutes of God. He's getting up in the middle of the night to to search over God's word as a man who is after something, in need of something. You would think that in all of his crying and all of his searching and so on and so forth, he would find what he's pining after, yet the psalmist continues to express throughout the entirety of this psalm, he is in need of something. He is afflicted with something. Paul speaks to a similar situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 and following. It says, you, you've probably heard this at weddings, but hear Paul's words. There's a, a specific particular verse I want to pull out here. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know, we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And then verse 12 is important for what the affliction of man is and of the psalmist. Ready? For we see now in a mirror dimly, but when face, then face to face, I know now in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. The Apostle Paul was espousing one of the great mysteries concerning the kind of everlasting love that flows from God and understanding and knowing the love that flows from God. But there seems to be a disconnect even for the Apostle Paul. It's, he said, I'm, I'm trying to express to you how much God loves you, but even for me, as I'm trying to express it, I can't quite express it. It's kind of like I'm looking through a glass that's not fully clear. Like when you're at work, if you're a glasses wearer, I'm usually at home, I'm a glasses wearer because I don't mess with my contacts when I'm at home. But even if, you're, if you have contact lenses or glasses, you ever, you ever have a kid that has like jelly on their hands and they reach up and like grab your glasses and just smudge them? Right? And you're like, Dah! and you have to wipe your glasses off because otherwise you've got that blurry spot right there in the middle of what you're trying to look at. This is similar to what the Apostle Paul is saying. The, the word mirror or glass or lens is similar in that text in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And he's saying, I'm trying to express to you the love of God, yet I can't quite because I'm looking through a glass that's smudged. We all are. We can't understand wholly what it is that God wants us to understand. We have to strain 
to make them out. Why? Why do we have to strain so hard to understand and perceive the things of God? Why are we afflicted like this? We are afflicted because post-fall, we are feeling the effects of sin. Feeling the effects of sin. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 21 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, without excuse, so we can see clear enough. But for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and foolish. Their foolish hearts were what? Darkened. Like a veil is over what we are supposed to be seeing. And though all men clearly know there is a God, they do not give honor or thanks to him. The fall of sin... Here's this is important. The fall of sin has caused mankind to ignore and deny their creator. Sin has affected our minds, our, has affected our ability to know. We have become futile in our thinking, the scripture tells us, apart from Jesus. This effect of sin upon your mind is known in theology as the noetic effects of sin. So like the knowing effects of sin plainly it just means that sin affects our very ability to perceive or to know anything. Everything we look at, every book we read, every sentence we utter, every piece of information that comes into our brain, unfortunately, is coming through the lens that is smudged by jelly hand toddlers, so to speak. We can't see. We can make out a, a, a shape, color, pieces, but it's still like a glass dim. Now, this hasn't obviously ultimately destroyed all of our reasoning. People, people can reason. We can reason. There's people that are, are much smarter than I am that are not Christians, and they reason about earthly things. Remember in Romans 1, it said we can clearly perceive general revelation. We can clearly perceive the created things around us, but where the glass gets dim is not when we're focusing on the creation, but rather when we're trying to see and observe and understand who? The creator himself. That is our affliction. That is what the psalmist, King David, in Psalm 119 is talking about when he says... To us, in 153, look at it. Look on my affliction and deliver me. Given this, the necessity of Scripture becomes pretty obvious, doesn't it? By our fallen nature, what we should most deeply need to know and see, and who we most deeply need to know and see, we can't perceive him very well. When truth is put in front of us, we have difficulty making it out. There's a veil over our faces. And so we, like the psalmist, must strain and strive to see. Reminds me of the lyrics in the song, on the song, The Solid Rock. When darkness veils his lovely face, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Number two. Second point from Psalm 119, 153 through 160. 
beginning in verse 154. The word is necessary first because we are afflicted. The word is necessary second because we are lost without it. We are lost without it. 154 through 156. Look at that real quick with me. Plead my cause and redeem me. So there's redemption that has to happen. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. So plead my cause. Give me life. Salvation is far from the wicked. And don't, don't be so quick to read this psalm as if David is looking out there at everybody else and saying, look at all them wicked people. He understands that wickedness lies right within his own heart as well. Salvation lies far from the psalmist King David, and it lies far from me and you on our own as well. Salvation is far, great, but great is your mercy. Give me life. Give me life. Give me life. I am dead. Give me life. I need saved. So the word is necessary because we are lost and undone without it. Continuing on in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, claiming to be wise, these people who can't see clearly, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And this is one of the most terrifying statements in the entire English language. You ready? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God gave them up. God gave us up to our sin. Now, being in need is not a comfortable thing, is it? Anybody like to feel needy? Anybody real comfortable, comfortable around a person who's needy? It's tough. No one likes to admit their need. No one likes to think that some force outside of them is necessary for what's best for them. Just because good old Protestant Southern Indiana work ethic tells you, handle your business, right? Take care of your stuff. Do what you got to do, right? That's, that's the American way. Grab yourself by the bootstraps and make it happen. So, this sermon and this second point is not going to make us feel good. Naturally. As Americans, as salt of the earth type people. Because I'm about to tell you just how desperately you need God's word. The word is necessary because we are lost. God gave us up. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, his sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, God holds every living person not in hell. Right now. 
Everybody take a deep breath with me. Let it out. You know why you are able to do that and you're not in a sinner's hell for eternity? The sovereign will of God. There is no want of power in God to cast wicked people into hell. Man's hands are not strong enough to resist God if he were to rise up against us. We deserve to be cast into hell. We deserve it. You, I, we together deserve hell. Divine justice never stands in the way of our condemnation. Actually, it supports it. If God were going to just be just, that would not work out well for us. We are already under that sentence of condemnation. We are not secure just because there is no visible means of death around us. Lest we think, especially you young people, that death is a far way off. It is not. Any accident at any time. We are fragile creatures. We cannot rest secure in our health. We cannot rest secure in our relative carefulness to not be involved in some sort of accident. It would be a terribly hateful thing for me this morning to preach this passage from Psalm 119 to you and not illustrate to you your absolute need for the divine word of God. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that you are when you are out of Christ. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is a dreadful pit of glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide open gaping mouth ready to swallow you. And you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. It is the only, the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up in his hand. And we sit upon it. If God should withdraw his hand, we would avail no more to keep you from falling into everlasting punishment than the thin air could hold up a person floating in it. You and I and all of us are in desperate need of mercy that only God can provide. Here's, you need Jesus. Y'all need Jesus. We need Jesus, but not in some sort of trite on a t-shirt, sarcastic type of way. We need the word because it's his nail-pierced hand that all of us rest upon and he holds us up in it. Let us not hate the commands of the hand of the one who holds us. God will not be mocked. Lest up until this point, you have been looking through the glass dimly and you can't quite clearly perceive the face of God, let me, let me wipe the smudge off a little bit here for you this morning. Apart from Jesus, you're going to hell. Period. Apart from your faith in Christ, you're going to hell. And God's not bad because of that. God is always good. Always good. 
And he has made a way where there was no way. And we all rest in that nail-pierced hand hovering over eternal punishment forever. But yet, was there ever a safer hand in which to rest? Was there ever a safer place to be? The hand that holds you will never falter. There is no other way to be saved. There is no other redemption. Kissed, kiss the nail-pierced hand that holds you now because it is the only hand that can hold you in eternity. Millions, billions of people have taken their last breath on earth expecting to see one thing only to take their first breath in eternity and be standing before Jesus. And that's either a really, really good thing or it's really, really not a good thing. There's no middle ground. It's either, this is either the hand that I have loved and kissed that held me from eternal punishment, or it's the hand that I have despised. Like the psalmist said, we are lost. We need the word with a big W to be saved. Therefore, we need this word to understand the word to be saved. John chapter 6, we sang about it. I love that song, Show Us Christ. After particularly difficult teaching that caused many of the people who were following Christ to, to turn away, to leave. There was an interesting, interesting interaction between Jesus and Peter. It says this, John chapter 6, after this Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, will you go away as well? Will you, will you jump from my hand as well? Will you leave me as well? Will you neglect to realize that it's my hand that's holding you as well? And Simon Peter, who got a lot of things wrong, but man, he got this one right. He answered him and he said, Lord, where else should we go? What other hand can we rest in? And whom else can we turn? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So the word is necessary because we are afflicted by the effects of our sin. The word is necessary because we are lost without Christ. And thirdly, the word is necessary because we have an adversary. Because we have an adversary. Verse 157. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. We have adversary primary and adversaries plural. Satan is real as real as the nose on your face. Just under the surface of all of our everyday interactions, hiding in the shadows, clouded in mystery and confusion, the devil works to undermine what God is doing in us and through us. So six things from Scripture you need to know about your adversary. You ready? Six things. Number one, Satan wants you, your adversary wants you to doubt God. In John chapter 20, the disciples shouted that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, but Thomas did what? He doubted, and it kept him from believing in the miracle of salvation 
And then when Jesus came to him, what did he say to him in John chapter 20, verse 27? It, it wasn't, he used those specific words. Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Satan wants you to doubt. Number two, Satan wants you to live in fear. Fear is not the absence of faith. Listen to me. Fear is, because Satan can't stop us from believing in stuff. We're go- we are wired as human beings to believe things. Believe in something. Believe in someone. Believe in someone's actions and so on and so forth. So he knows he can't stop us from believing in things. So he wants to misdirect our faith instead. Fear is not the absence of faith. It is the misplacement of faith. Life in Christ is not a life in fear. Psalm 34 verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from my fear. Number three, Satan wants you to feel insecure. He wants you to believe that the saving hand of Christ is not safe enough. That Jesus couldn't possibly accomplish total salvation for us as he outlines in the scriptures. I know many of you battle with with insecurity. You feel the deep need of salvation because you know how wretched of a sinner you are, yet yet you have not fully embraced the safety of the hand of Christ. That's Satan. Jesus knows, God knows, his word knows nothing of that. You have misplaced your faith. That's why you live in fear. Your faith belongs, when Jesus said, have faith in me, he means trust that my hand is sufficient enough to keep you from everlasting punishment and to bring you into eternal life. Satan wants you to feel insecure. Fourthly, Satan wants you to avoid the church. The more uninvolved you become with the body of Christ, the harder it is to persevere in your faith. The ordinary means of grace in coming together and encouraging each other, singing of our salvation, hearing of God's word preached, it isn't easy to follow Jesus in a world that does not. It isn't easy to follow Jesus in a world that can't see him clearly. They see him dimly. When we leave the community we are made for, we are destined to be devoured. The scriptures say that Satan prowls around looking for whom he can what? Devour. You know what a lion does to a flock of gazelle? He looks for the little weak one. And then what's he do? Separates it from the herd and then devours it. This is the imagery the scriptures give us about Satan. Stay with the herd. Stay together here with us. Don't avoid the church. That's a satanic trick. Number five, Satan wants you to be led astray. Watch out for false prophets, it says in Matthew 7, for they will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. When we rely on the words of men or ourselves in place of the word of God, that it's such a necessity to our faith, we can lead ourselves or others away from Jesus and away from truth. Number six, Satan ultimately just wants you to fail. He wants you to fail. The devil wants to destroy us. He wants us to settle for what the world has given us and accept our lots. 2 Corinthians 4, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in us. Satan wants us to fail, 
but, a, but we can only fail apart from Jesus. We can't fail with Christ because the hand of Christ does not fail. I've got, I've got six verses here. Um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through them, but they're just six. I'm, yeah, actually, I will. I'm going to just read them real quick, real fast. So, and then if you want this to take with you, maybe you struggle with, with those things I talked about. Maybe Satan's just battering you. The adversary's just hitting you and smacking you from all around, and he's filling your head with things that you're, you're not secure in Christ. You don't need those church people, and you're just being battered by those lies. I've got six verses here. I'll make you a copy at the service if you're interested. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. 1 Peter 5, be alert, sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, here it is, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. James 4, 7, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Romans 8, 37 through 39 no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally, Colossians 1, verses 13 through 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Amen and amen. The word of God is necessary because we are afflicted. The word of God is necessary because we are lost without it. The word of God is absolutely necessary because we are constantly, every single day, doing battle against our great adversary and hordes and legions of demons that are out to get you and knock you off track and weaken you and try to pick you off. You have a defense, though. You have a defense. And it would feel, because, because of our sin, man, we're in a, just a, this is depressing if we just stop right here, isn't it? You, I, I mean, it's like, it's like the person who's adrift at sea, and I'm just calling, it's like I'm on a safe boat, and I'm over here, and I say, hey, did you know you're lost? Yeah. Hey, did you, uh, did you know you're kind of cold and afflicted? Yeah, I, I, I get it. Hey, did you know that? There's somebody whipping up these storms around you and they're battering you and beating you from all sides and they want you to sink. And you're like, yeah. So what now? Right? 160. Psalm 119, 160. And here is our concluding point and really just concluding point to this sermon, concluding point to this text, and concluding point to Psalm 119 in total. The sum of your word is truth. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Because of our sin, the deck feels stacked against us. It feels like we're lost, because we are. We're set adrift at sea. We have blurry vision and we can't see straight. And furthermore, there is someone with supernatural powers always working to keep us that way. The Hebrew word translated as truth here 
is conveying the concept of less like, less like uh, apologetic truth, like, like less Ravi Zacharias arguing for objective Western truth, more plumb line, more true and straight and constant and consistent and reliable and stable and faithful. That's what truth means. When it says, throw that verse back up there, when it says the sum of your word is truth, it means it is the, the word of God is a plumb line. It is a fixed point. Fixedness. The intention of God communicating to us just as we need it in a sufficient, clear, and authoritative way is so that there might be a fixed point to guide his children home to him. God is a communicating God, and because we are made in his image, we are communicators. People say a lot of things. We talk a lot, most of which of what we say has little to no eternal merit whatsoever. But when God speaks, hear me, when God speaks, his yes is always yes, and his no is always no. It is reliable, it is faithful, it is stable, it is fixed, and it is true. Isaiah 28 verse 16 said, Behold, I lay a cornerstone in Zion, a sure foundation, a stone tried and true. And then in Matthew 21, guess what Jesus says about that verse? That's me, he says. I am the cornerstone. You, you set your guide by me and you will not be lost. You, set your, you build the house according to the fixed nature of the word with a big W and the word with a little W and all will be straight and all will be well and all will be eternal. We may be lost in a sea of our sin adrift half blind as a consequence of our own self-righteousness, Satan whipping up storms and battering us with waves to keep us off balance and fatigued and disoriented. But amidst the chaos, there is a fixed light piercing through the darkness. It is a lighthouse of truth, absolute truth, anchored soundly on the rock of ages, guiding all who would believe toward the shores of eternal life. Here it is, lighthouse. Bursting through the cloudiness. Beckoning you out of your lostness. Driving away the darkness of your adversary. A lighthouse set on the eternal rock of ages, Jesus. When our culture and the world rages around us, Get your bearings. Get your bearings. And row toward home. Get your bearings. And then live as he has commanded you to live. Walk as he has commanded you to walk. Row towards home. When you are disappointed, depressed, destitute, or disgusted, get your bearings. And row toward home. Every morning, orient your heart towards the promised land and then live as you're being instructed. And you don't even have to do this alone. This little lifeboat called Mount Vernon Baptist Church, we keep our bearings to the best of our ability and we keep trying to row toward home. 
In this boat, we keep each other encouraged. We remind each other to row towards Christ, to, to live in such a way that would honor the truth, the true one, our Lord. And when really bad storms come, we hunker down and make sure everyone is content. Danger of drowning, the ship's captains, your elders yell, man overboard, and we stop, and it's an all-out rescue attempt to get back in the boat and row toward home, towards eternal life, towards the promised land of Jesus Christ. We are bound for the promised land. And so I beckon you today, if you have gone slack, if you are in the boat and you have gone slack on your getting your bearings and driving towards home, grab your oar and row. If you are outside of the boat and you are drowning in your sin, may my voice be the clear voice of the Lord this morning calling you toward home. He doesn't hate you. He loves you, and he sent his son to die for you, that there would be a light and an eternal promised land by which you can live and dwell and love him. Get in the boat and row with us. Come. Come on. Those, soul, those sailors I told you about earlier, they made it. They made it. For 15 days and over 800 miles, the men battled the treacherous seas and massive storms with waves up to 100 feet. By night, they oriented themselves using the North Star. And by day, when it was hidden from their sight, when it was veiled from their sight, which it was only a couple hours a day because they're in the Arctic and, well, it was dark like 20 hours a day. But when it was day, they, they just tried to hold the course that they set when they had the fixed point. And as soon as they could see the fixed point again, they reoriented themselves and rode until they reached land and found help. And Shackleton procured another ship and returned to rescue all of his men. They trusted in a fixed point piercing through the darkness, and they were saved. But here's the thing about Shackleton and his men. Every one of Shackleton's men now is deceased. Their salvation wasn't eternal. But if you trust in the fixed point, in the light shining through the darkness, guiding you home, toward our one true one, our faithful one, our cornerstone, our Jesus, you will be saved too. Amen. Let's pray.